Hello, this is Harold Lapidus, and welcome to episode two of the Boston Herald podcast. This week's focus will be on the World of Bob Dylan 2019 Symposium, which took place in Tulsa, Oklahoma at the end of May and the beginning of June. And for those who don't know, that's where the official Bob Dylan archives are now located. And it's around the corner, a few blocks away from the Woody Guthrie Center, which I don't think is a coincidence. But before we get to that, there are a couple of other things I wanted to address. First of all, the world of Bob Dylan studies uh, suffered two major losses recently. One was Stephen Pickering. Apparently, he was 71 years old. There's a bit of uh, trouble trying to confirm it, but according to some people that I don't know, he died a few weeks back. He was based in Oregon, and he was one of the early Dylan scholars. He wrote the book Bob Dylan Approximately, which was the second Bob Dylan book I think I ever bought. He saw everything that Bob Dylan did and almost uh, the way everything happened in the world through a Jewish lens, which made him a bit of a controversial figure. But he contacted me a few years back, quite a few years back, through email, big supporter of me, also Seth Rogovoy, Scott Warmoth, and some other people. And he hung out with Dylan, actually, at the very beginning of the 1974 tour. There's pictures of them together. Apparently he had some sort of pamphlet or something, and he showed it to Bob Dylan, and his book, Bob Dylan, approximately covered every show on the tour and, again, presented it through a, a Jewish lens. We would often share information one way or another or ask each other questions through email and through Facebook. I had to explain to him what uh, trolls were because he would waste his time addressing those pests and once I explained what that was and that how he should set up his own Facebook page, which was called The Friends of Bob Dylan, I think his life got a little bit easier. But he was clearly a very intense guy and was working on something called a monograph, which was apparently documenting every single moment of Bob Dylan's life, I guess. He also had a, an interesting way of speaking. It's almost like he invented his own language. And one of my favorite puns that he used was uh, referring to the internet as Siberia, which is C-Y-P-E-R-I-A. Anyway, uh, I already miss him. He used to post every day almost on social media one way or another, and now he's gone. That's how I originally realized he was no longer with us by the lack of communication. I went on his page and people who apparently knew him shared the sad news. So Stephen was the victim of an anti-Semitic attack, according to something he posted on Facebook back in mid-May. I have no idea if this had anything to do with um, what uh, happened to him. May his memory be a blessing. The other major loss in the Dylan community was D.A. Pennybaker, the documentarian who did, among other things, Don't Look Back, did some of the filming, or did the filming for Eat the Document, the rarely seen, except for a lot of people listening right now, a 1971 film of the 1966 tour. And he did a legendary documentaries of David Bowie's farewell concert at Ziggy Stardust, 1973, which was the final episode of In Concert, I think in 1974, the ABC TV show. Monterey Pop, of course. I uh, did Depeche Mode, plenty of other music things, and certainly wasn't limited to music films. He was very uh, much a documentarian. Uh, luckily, I got to interview him twice, thanks to my friend Mojo Mike Simmons. He was promoting a work in progress about animal rights on HBO, and I helped with the awareness of the film and helped raise money for it. 
And then later I got to interview him again when Don't Look Back came out as a Blu-ray with even more footage that, that had not been previously seen. He told me that he expected one day that everyone would be able to see just about everything he filmed in some way or another. This is way before the Bob Dylan Center was anything anyone really knew about, I guess. And apparently it's going to happen because they have a lot of his footage. When uh, Michael Chaikin was talking about what's in the archives, the 1966 films was one of the things that needed the most care and in uh, preserving and upgrading even more so than the 2005 footage used in Martin Scorsese's No Direction Home video. And he was a great guy, very generous, very knowledgeable, and it was an honor to speak with him those two times. And uh, if you haven't seen some of these movies, you should definitely check them out. All right. Well, on to happier subjects. Uh, I have more to say about the Rolling Thunder review uh, CDs and uh, the movie. I don't know if anyone noticed there was something quite scandalous in the Scorsese fever dream. If you noticed on the 1976 tour page at the end of the movie, it listed all the shows, but one was missing. The second night of the hurricane, which took place at the Houston Astrodome. And I guess it was a bit of a fiasco featured... And Stevie Wonder, Stephen Stills, Ringo Starr. It was not a very well-documented concert, surprisingly. There's not a lot of information about it, although I wouldn't be surprised if the archives had it because they had things that would just blow your mind, and I'll get to that later. But it's the type of thing I'm sure uh, Stephen Pickering <laughs> would have gotten a kick out of. So the more you think about the Rolling Thunder film, the more you peel away at the layers of the onion, as it were the more is revealed, and like a great Dylan song, more and more things become apparent. No Direction Home, Scorsese's previous documentary, was based in reality, obviously. I wasn't too happy with the way uh, it made it sound like people were booing louder than they actually were at the Newport First Electric show, but that's a minor complaint, really. If you think about the Trouble No More documentary, instead of using Dylan's actual sermons from the stage, they had an actor reading a script. It's probably because on some level, Dylan didn't want some of the things he said to be part of the set, again, controlling his own history. And again, that's happening with the Rolling Thunder film here. Most of you know that generally speaking, he's not someone who shares about his personal life. Even Chronicles is memoir is full of uh, fiction and when something as personal as what was going on in his, in his marriage and so on he's not gonna make a documentary about that and in fact his first wife Sarah is, is not really included in the movie at all I think someone saw the back of her head at one point but she's not in it and, and that's to be expected so you can just imagine Dylan and Scorsese saying, well, why don't we do this? Why don't we add Sharon Stone? Why don't we add Kiss? Why don't we add a fake movie director? When, you know, why don't we do this, do that? And then it all begins to make sense. But the interesting thing is that it does shine a light on what was really going on from Dylan's perspective with fame, with hangers-on and filmmakers and people interpreting him and so on. So it does make sense. It's just hidden behind a mask. I'm also going through the second time around, or in some cases the third time around, with the Rolling Thunder box set of CDs. One thing that I always thought about the Rolling Thunder review is that Dylan went full circle. Started off as this folky guy when he 
arrived in Greenwich Village in the early 60s, participated in Hootenannies and so on, went electric with the band, spent uh, almost eight years at home, for the most part being a dad and family man. Reunited with the band in early 74, and then went back to connecting with the old gang, uh, Joan Baez, Roger McGuinn, Ramblin' Jack, Bob Neuwirth, Robbie Robertson, and they're all represented in the box set. In fact, the song selections cover his entire career from singing with his childhood friend, Larry Keegan, an old Hank Williams song. I guess they're all old songs at this point. To uh, Woody Guthrie, to all sorts of traditional songs, some uh, other covers, folk songs, and so on. Even though they're not the hit versions, it does give an overview of his career up until that time, and even hints a bit at the future. He does uh, People Get Ready, and he also does a, his own song, What Are You Gonna Do When Jesus Comes, which predicted his uh, upcoming gospel period, which he may not have even been aware of at the time. And he also plays a lot of piano, which is his instrument of choice for lo, these many recent years. The first three discs of rehearsals in the beginning of the 14th disc are probably the most fascinating archival releases since the Cutting Edge box set, which covered 1965 and 1966. It's just fascinating to hear Dylan go from guitar to piano and vice versa, changing tempos, changing lyrics, changing arrangements. To hear Dylan create in this way is something that any person interested in either Dylan's creative process or anyone's creative process would find interesting. And then there are the five live concerts over 10 CDs. Even though the set lists change only slightly from night to night, you can feel Bob Dylan performing in the moment. The phrasing is different every night, and he's feeding off both the band behind him and the often relatively intimate audience in front of him. The easiest way to give an example, if you listen to the different versions of Tangled Up in Blue, solo acoustic, uh, the rhythms are completely different because that's what he felt like doing at that time, and that becomes crystal clear with the performance. Okay, on to the Bob Dylan Symposium in Tulsa, Oklahoma. It took place on the final two days of May and the first two days of June, and they were four of the happiest days of my life. It was so much fun meeting people that I'd only heard about, that we connected previously either on the phone or through social media, new friends. It was quite the experience, and everyone treated everyone with respect, and everyone was happy to share information. I decided not to take any notes because I was there to basically enjoy myself and give my own presentation. I figured other people would document it in one way or another. There were a couple of articles online that I noticed. I submitted three possible subjects for my talk. One was the Beatles and Bob Dylan, and that was covered elsewhere. My second choice was Bob Dylan and the Grateful Dead, and that was not accepted. And the one that they chose was Bob Dylan, Street Legal, and the Ghost of Elvis. That would be Elvis Presley. And I'm glad they did, because I got to focus on Street Legal, one of my favorite albums, one of the most perplexing and fascinating unjustly ignored by a lot of people, although one thing I noticed before, during, and after the symposium that there is quite the cult following for the album, which makes me feel not alone, and maybe it'll be a bootleg series one day. Anyway, I'll get more into the speech a little bit later, but let me bring you into past late May as I arrive in Tulsa 
throughout the flight, I was reading and rereading my speech. Since I was working on it so much, I didn't get a chance to rehearse it. So quietly in my seat, I read it and read it and read it and made little corrections here and there. Finally landed in Tulsa, saw a guy with a faded Dylan tour t-shirt. Eventually we stuck up a conversation. Turns out his name is Matthew and he was from North Carolina, I believe. He was meeting a relative, just started talking. And I mentioned this guy named Harry, who I had been communicating with via Twitter. He had transportation, he had a room, but he didn't have a ticket. And then a voice behind me said, Harold, is that you? And it was my uh, new friend, Harry from Canada, another street legal enthusiast. And we bonded right away. He spent most of the next four days talking whenever he had the chance. Uh, we went to the hotel, got our goodie bags, had a laminate program, stickers, and we were handed different buttons, which decided which presentation of the archives we would attend. I got the Thin Man button, and uh, we all hit the ground running, and luckily there was food and coffee between the different panels, which lasted 90 minutes, and there were four at a time, so you had to pick and choose who you got to see. There was a guy named Bennett who started a Facebook page as a fan, and a became the official Facebook page of the symposium. We sort of arranged to meet, and Kevin Odegaard, the guitarist on the Minnesota version of Tangled Up in Blue, also contacted me. We hoped to meet as well. Spent most of the next four days going from panel to panel and eating and meeting and bonding and sharing all sorts of Dylan trivia and all sorts of personal stuff and just having a great time meeting all these great people. I'm going to try not to go into too much detail about the four days because this I get the feeling this podcast is going to be long enough as it is. But I basically chose who I was going to see speak based on the people as opposed to the subjects. Someone had a fascinating discussion on the importance of Bob Dylan's harmonica solos, but I didn't get to that one. The first thing I saw was Carnival of Characters because uh, Nina Goss was speaking, someone that I had interviewed uh, when I was the Bob Dylan examiner. Then I rushed over to see the end of Paul Haney's talk. He's someone that I met briefly at a Christopher Ricks speech here at, here at Boston University. After the coffee break, I got to finally hear someone else I'd interviewed, uh, Andrew Muir, who has a new book about Dylan and Shakespeare. And he certainly uh, humorously uh, referred to it many times. He was hoping to have it out by the time of his speech, but unfortunately it was delayed. He is a scholar of both Shakespeare and Dylan, and he finally merged them both together in his new book. I went to the elevator, and there was a guy with a Robin Hitchcock t-shirt on, and anyone knows me knows how much I admire Mr. Hitchcock. And I started talking to him, and he looked at my laminate after a while and said, You're Harold! And we talked about this great birthday show Robin Hitchcock did a few years back, and Al Cooper played organ, and they did a half hour worth of Blonde on Blonde material and it was spectacular and we reminisced about that and we made plans to meet again when we got back to the Boston area because apparently he's from Somerville, Massachusetts, which is um, some place I go to a lot, not too far from where I live. And then it was time before dinner to hear the official opening and Grell Marcus's keynote address, which was titled, Kill Everybody Ever Done Me Wrong, Blues and Bob Dylan which was an excellent speech. I'd seen him speak before, but this one was uh, particularly good. I'd hate to misquote him, but as I said, I didn't take notes, but the sort of moral of the story or the summary was that some people were afraid to enjoy art 
and also that they thought of art as biography, which is something I grappled with for a long time as well. I think I got it under control now. Uh, but it was a great speech. I spoke to him briefly and bumped into him the, in the elevator uh, the next day, too. A nice guy. He actually remembered me from a previous brief meeting in New York, and that was cool. Then afterwards, went to meet Larry White, who is someone I met through social media again. Uh, Martin Atkins, the former drummer for Public Image Limited, mentioned he was in Tulsa, and he was Pills manager around 1980 when I saw Public Image for the first time, the first Boston show, one of the greatest shows I've ever seen. And he also managed Pete Townsend in the early 80s, and he had plenty of stories. Most fascinating was, first of all, being brave enough to manage Johnny Rotten in Public Image. For those who don't know, Johnny Rotten and Johnny Lydon formed the band Public Image after the Sex Pistols uh, exploded. And he told great stories about taking some of the members of Public Image to Fenway Park to see the Red Sox. And maybe he'll be on here one day to tell those stories, but he was a fun guy. Day two, May 31st, was at the Gilcrease Museum, which we needed a bus to get to. So after our morning coffee and snacks, I got to hear two of my favorite people speak, John Hughes and Keith Miles. Keith secured a room in the Troubadour where Dylan played on his first British trip, and is now the Dylan room, and people like Michael Gray and others have will and have spoken there. John Hughes discussed Liverpool gal Pauline Batty and Dylan's first visit to London. And it was typically British. He took all this information and came up with the conclusion almost that things may or may not have happened. And Keith talked about Dylan and Robert Graves in another fascinating speech. And it was great to meet those guys and hung out with them quite a bit too. Next up was my attendance at what is called the Deep Dive into the Bob Dylan Archive Collection with Michael Chaikin and Robert Polito, who's the one who interviewed him. I went to this archive thinking, well, what could they really have that I don't already know about? Well, mind blown. If you haven't read about it, fashion your seatbelts, because this was just amazing stuff. Michael Chaikin talked about the 38,000 photographs they had that were being digitally restored. Some of the stuff, I'm not even sure what's, what I've seen before and what I haven't. There's so much stuff that's out there, but they showed out takes uh, from Don't Look Back. Dylan playing, it takes a lot to laugh, it takes a train to cry, and I'll keep it in mind backstage. Talked about how the 1966 footage had to be upgraded and preserved, and a lot of it was water damage and so on. So we saw clips of Dylan doing Like Rolling Stone, Just Like a Woman and Mr. Tambourine Man. There was the legendary Tiny Tim with Dylan in Woodstock sitting around a table. Right now it's silent footage. This is Woodstock 67, Basement Tapes era. And lo and behold, it seems like the tape recorder seen in the corner of the frame was found and they're planning on syncing it up. So that'll be fascinating, needless to say. And then the coolest thing that you could ever imagine, apparently there was a new Sony video camera. This is before Sony took over Columbia Records. It was still CBS, 1970. And there was footage of Dylan laughing as uh, he was rehearsing The Man and Me from the New Morning Sessions. And you could see Dave Bromberg and Al Cooper in the background. Yeah, if you don't think that's cool, <laughs> uh, I guess you can't be impressed. But it was amazing stuff. And it just makes you wonder what else is there that they didn't even get a chance to present. There's also the audio. So what they played was Ready Teddy from 1958. version, the very fast version of Ready Teddy. Little Richard... Buddy Holly, Elvis Presley all recorded it. There were first takes of all along the watchtower, and as I went out one morning, 
first take of As I Went Out one morning. I had a waltz-like arrangement, very different from the final version. There's also the first take of Lovesick. Again, brilliant. A revelatory first take of New Pony from Street Legal. It had three chords instead of two and had this a really cool horn arrangement, which none of those things made the final cut. But again, Street Legal, bootleg series, it's got to happen. They also had the first take of Isis from Desire. Apparently he's on acoustic guitar and not on piano. If that's just the tip of the iceberg, so to speak, who knows how much awesome stuff is in there waiting to be shared with the world. So after lunch, I was half listening to the presentations in the Vista room because I was still rehearsing my speech, including, as I said, last minute alterations. But Jeff Fallis had a, an interesting talk about James Baldwin and a guy named Court Carney was talking about listening to the John Wesley Harding outtakes. And he said there was a version of Drifter's Escape, one of the first things from the sessions and the drumming that Kenny Buttry did, the same drummer as on Blonde on Blonde, with similar drum pattern as on Visions of Johanna. So they're planning a John Wesley Harding-ish era bootleg series and they think they're just going to pick and choose, but if you're listening there, Sony just released the whole thing. It's not that much stuff. Another CD's worth of stuff is not going to break anyone's bank anymore than the regular box set would. I walked away and sat outside the auditorium where I was about to speak, still adding more and more stuff to my speech. So when I got in there, I saw Mitch Blank, the famous uh, Dylan archivist, and Bill Pagel, the famous webmaster of uh, Bob Links, as well as apparently a new real estate mogul buying some of Bob Dylan's former properties. Before I spoke, uh, Hillary Saunders of No Depression Magazine, managing editor, talked about social media and where Bob Dylan fits in it, which is fascinating. Gal Wald had a, an interesting perspective on Bob Dylan and the Gospel Chanteuse. An example would be how the women that Dylan collaborates with are often dismissed or thought of as backing singers as opposed to collaborators. A lot of the women there gave the most interesting perspectives on how to view Dylan and his collaborators. And as I said, then it was my turn. And Sean Lantham, one of the people in, in charge of the symposium and the Bob Dylan Center, said that he plans on compiling as many speeches as possible. So I'm not going to go into too much detail here, but basically... I connected Bob Dylan to Elvis Presley in a way that I don't think anyone else had using Street Legal as the excuse <laughs> to do it. And some of it was pretty serious and some of it was just silly. So it's kind of like a parody of everyone there speaking. But I enjoyed it and I think it went over well. So one way or another, that'll be shared in the future. After my speech, I finally got to meet Stu, who's someone I knew through the internet, and the great Dylan Sleuth my favorite one, Scott Warmoth. And we got to spend a little quality time together. That was uh, fun to meet him after after all these years. So then after dinner, there was another keynote, the Bob Dylan Archive Collection from 1963 to 2001. A lot of it was shown, I guess, at an Asbury Park Festival and maybe other places, but I hadn't seen this particular presentation. If you're a Dylan collector, you've seen some of the stuff, but not all of it. And again, the care that they've taken to make it look great cannot be uh, overstated. There are things that have been shared through collectors and it's on YouTube and so on throughout the years, but some of the stuff that I saw was just breathtaking. There was a tight connection to my heart from the Supper Club in 1993. It wasn't to Dylan's liking. It was his own version of Dylan Unplugged. He did four sets for free at the Supper Club in New York. 
apparently the lighting wasn't right, but it doesn't matter. To see Dylan performing that song in that setting was just begging for a release, and people have been begging for a release for a long, long time. Also great were two outtakes from the 1976 Hard Rain TV special, uh, Going, Going, Gone. It was totally rewritten among the lines where, if you want to be free, you've got to let go of my hand, something like that. And then there was one of the two songs that wasn't even shown anywhere else, You're a Big Girl Now, which ended up on the Hard Rain album. And for those playing at home, he's playing acoustic guitar on that track. And then they had, at the end, another rarity, a version of Hurricane from the first part of the Rolling Thunder review, of course, because it really didn't make it to the second part. I wasn't sure if that was from Ronaldo and Clara or not, but anyway... It, again, it was cool. It was also the only complete 1966 solo acoustic version of It's All Over Now, Baby Blue. Fantastic. D.A. Pennebecker again. Other clips that were shown were things from Newport 63, The Quest 64, Last Waltz, Rolling Thunder, Toronto 80, Europe 81, Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers 86, and so on. And as I said, the uh, quality was uh, superb. So now it's June 1st, and again, we're spending the whole day in the hotel again. The bottom floor is where all the uh, panels took place. I got to see my uh, virtual friend, Michael Perlin. We had lunch earlier. He was a lawyer and gave a, he gave an interesting speech. Then I ran over to catch the end of Richard F. Thomas, again, a local guy who I've never seen, but he teaches at Harvard. Too Serious to Fool was the name of his talk, and the audio wasn't working, so he decided to sing some of, uh, I think it was something off the basement tapes, which is quite entertaining. So after the next coffee break, Another one of the highlights was Ann Powers of NPR, formerly the New York Times, who gave a speech on Bob Dylan's body, love, sex, and gender. Something that usually isn't covered by male Dylanologists. And it was interesting how she focused on how he presented himself throughout the decades. During Ann Powers' speech, she did reference street legal. She told me afterwards that she had seen my speech, and at least one of the references that she made was to my talk in particular. Then afterwards, when she was entertaining questions from the audience, I was sitting next to Keith Miles, or almost next to him. We were sitting behind this guy who dared say, well, I don't think you should listen to Street Legal to Ann Powers because it's sexist or whatever. And you had this, started talking and Keith, <laughs> Keith went up to me or whispered to me, come on, let's go beat him up. Of course, he was just kidding, but it, it, it lightened the mood a little. It's pretty funny. So after... And Paris spoke. I bumped into those guys from England, John Hughes and Keith Miles. And I hope they're, they see this as the compliment as it is. But it, try to think of Peter Cook and Dudley Moore. John Hughes was the tall, more serious one, which would be Peter Cook. And Dudley Moore was Keith Miles. He was not quite as tall and very funny and charming. I saw them leaving the keynote speech. And I said, you guys getting a bite to eat? And they said... We've got to find the soccer match. As I said, is it on TV? And it's like, oh, yeah. It's like, well, there's a restaurant right in the hotel. Let's go there and they have TVs and see if they'll put it on. So we went up there and they did turn it on and the, the match hadn't started yet. And I was sharing some hummus and pita bread with John Hughes. And at one point he looked up and said, Liverpool scored and I missed it. <laughs> anyway, it's time to go to the next panel. And John decided to say, I met him afterwards and I said, who won the match? And he said, it was tied 2-2. <laughs> it was like watching a, a film from the 60s or something. These two guys from England go all the way to Tulsa, Oklahoma, go to a Bob Dylan conference, and all they want to do is watch a soccer game. <laughs> it was awesome. 
After lunch, I went to the politics and fandom panel. There were two interesting talks from a female perspective. There was Nicolette Rohr, whose speech was called Them Screaming Girls, rock, Folk Rock and Dylan Fandom. And it was interesting for many reasons, but one thing to think about was how young girls screaming at the Beatles or Bob Dylan, whoever, were dismissed in rock history as just sort of being silly and immature when... To paraphrase Willie Dixon, the men didn't know, but the little girls understood, certainly. And just because they were not guys, they weren't taken seriously, but they got it often before the guys. Then uh, Laura Tenchert, who hosts the uh, Definitely Dylan radio show from England, took a feminist view and discussed things in a way that you might not expect. She certainly addressed sexism and misogyny in both Dylan's work and in Dylan fandom. But she also, for instance, interpreted Sweetheart Like You and the lines like a, a woman like you should be home, that's where you belong, as being in character and not necessarily something that Dylan thinks. But, but if you're going to play a guy from the 1930s or 40s, you're going to say things like that. So then, finally, 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 I got to meet Anne Margaret Daniel. She was part of the Blood on the Tracks, Dylan at Work panel. This is the last one before dinner. First, Anastasia Carell of the uh, Rock and Roll Hall of Fame gave a talk about Tangled Up in Tracks. It was a work in progress, but she wanted someone to videotape it on her phone, so I did the honors. Then Anne Margaret Daniel, who's been writing about the Dylan notebooks for Blood on the Tracks. She's written articles about it and talked about it. She made some interesting connections. And then after that, it was time to go to dinner. So I bumped into a few of the people I've been hanging out with, including Ann Margaret Daniel. And finally, we're all going to have a meal together, a Mexican restaurant down the street, and get to know each other a little bit better. What happens? Ann Margaret Daniel stepped on a brick the wrong way and broke her foot, which kind of, you know, say, put a damper on things. She ended up being hospitalized, kept on sharing pictures of her, her foot on uh, social media. But um, ended up talking to someone who was a friend of someone else who also left. And we, uh, he, we had a nice discussion about modern times and what it meant to us. Then in the evening, it was time for my friend Jeff Slate, who I'd spoken to on the phone previously, but we finally got to meet. And even though we passed each other briefly throughout the couple of days, it was his uh, privilege to interview Roger McGuinn. And Roger brought his guitar and sang a lot of songs. And I talked to Jeff afterwards. And apparently he played a lot more songs than they planned on. Jeff was great at not only asking questions for people who didn't know a lot about McGuinn and Dylan and the Birds, but he also asked a lot of questions that Roger was not normally asked. So that made it interesting for people like me. So bravo, Jeff. The last day, everything took place at the Oklahoma Jazz Hall of Fame, just walking distance from the hotel. I was exhausted by this point, so I just stayed near the coffee machine. I didn't really know any of the people who were talking, although uh, Alan Thomas, after he had spoken, introduced himself to me and just wanted to shake my hand, and I wish I'd known that beforehand. I would gladly would have seen him speak. I sat through It All Starts With The Blues, which included Robert Cataliotti, who was the chair, I guess, for, the, for my panel, and he gave an interesting talk about the early days of Dylan in Greenwich Village. Spent some more time talking to Harry. <laughs> and there's one more talk with about religion, spirituality, and Bob Dylan. One of the things that came up that was particularly interesting was John R. Case talking about old religion during the age of Aquarius, Dylan, and John Wesley Harding. 
they're talking about the song Saint Augustine and why of all the Saint Augustines and all the saints in general why was that one chosen for that song and after a lot of intellectualizing they realized it just sounded the best <laughs> you know that kind of sums everything up really you can analyze it all you want but sometimes it's like why did the Beatles play on the roof because it was the easiest why did they cross across Abbey Road because it was the easiest so it was time to leave you know sad I was saying goodbye to Mitch Blank he wanted me to sign a book for him uh, Bill Pagel, and there was um, someone I sat next to, I think it was at, at the end, Power Speech, who was from Dublin, and we were going to walk back to the hotel when two other guys started talking to me. One of them was taking the same flight back that I was. I didn't know these guys before this moment, and they said, we, we rented a car. We're going to go to the Woody Guthrie Museum, something I really wanted to attend. Uh, the only thing I really missed was the Dylan Art display uh, face value because I was too busy with my speech. So I got to see this woman, Libby, speak, who invited me the day before, and I said I didn't think I could make it, so I, we got about 40 minutes of that. There's a little bit of a confusion of where to meet and everything, and I thought I was going to miss my flight, but everything worked out okay. And I realized as I was leaving, I never got to meet Kevin Odegaard, and I never got to meet Bennett, who set up this whole meeting process, and it was a bit of a shame, but at least I got to thank Sean Lantham profusely before I left. So in the airport, bumped into Jeff Slade. I bumped into Anastasia Carell from the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. I also bumped into John, my friend I met in the elevator on the first day. So John and I, the Robin Hitchcock fan, tried to charge our phones and figure out where the bathrooms were that were working and so on. Finally got home late at night and looked forward to getting the Rolling Thunder Review box set sent to me that weekend by Sony. Started digging into that. So on the Wednesday, it was finally time to see Martin Scorsese's Conjuring Bob Dylan's Rolling Thunder Review Song and Dance Fever Dream thingy. Uh, I watched it again, actually, the first hour a couple of nights ago. And something I noticed uh, about 25 minutes in during that executive shuffle business news article, uh, there's a shot of former Boston DJ Eddie Gordetsky, who went on to write for Saturday Night Live and Letterman. He was there both times when... Uh, Dylan first appeared, and apparently uh, he befriended Dylan, and later enticed him to appear on his show, Dharma and Greg. He also showed up in the Love and Theft TV ad, and in the movie Masked and Anonymous. And here he is listed in this article as Pete Manny Mancini, and of course Pierre Mancini was the name Gardetsky used during a theme time radio hour. Also listed was Dominic J. DeVito, who was listed as the Audio Electronics Corp. Vice President of Marketing and Operations in Akron, Ohio. Of course, Don DeVito produced four Dylan albums. He was the one who enticed Dylan back to Columbia from Asylum Records, and he produced the Rolling Thunder-related albums Desire and Hard Rain, as well as The Legendary, Street Legal, and Live at Budokan. And the other big takeaway I had while I was watching the non-documentary with some of my uh, closest friends, I realized that I was living in a Dylan bubble. All my friends here, uh, they like Dylan to varying degrees, but were they taking notes? Were they scurrying to the internet afterwards to find out what is real and what is not? Of course not. They're normal. I left the crazies back in Tulsa. But as Waylon Jennings sang, I've always been crazy, but it keeps me from going insane. So anyway, can't wait to get back to Tulsa in a couple of years for the next symposium. And if things go well, they'll let me into the archives and I can do some street legal research, <laughs> try to do something with it. Anyway, thank you for listening. 
Uh, this is Harold Lapidus with the Boston Herald podcast. In the future, you can expect, hopefully, interviews. And you want to hear me babbling on for almost an hour about anything. And I have other people babbling on for an hour about almost anything. All right, take care. It's time for my boot heel speed wandering. See ya.